Lord, let the words of the hymn be true, that we do have blessed assurance in your promises, O Lord, in the return of Christ, in the blessings of Christ in the moment. Let this be our story, O Lord. Let this be our song, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and you may open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 6 this morning, so read along in your, in your Bibles with me. Um, and so John writes these words. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. And the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Father, we ask this morning that you would add your presence through the Holy Spirit in the reading and proclamation and exposition, O Lord, of this, your holy word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And so we have the story once again. Last week we read the companion passage to this from the Gospel of Mark. And this week we're here um, at this place in the Gospel of John. And so I'm going to... Well, let me comment on a few things. These things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Remember, the Sea of Galilee has all these different names. Herod Antipas named it after Tiberias. There's also a city there um, named Tiberias, so he named it after, after the Caesar. 
um, sycophant that he was. He also notes, and only John really does this, in verse, in verse 2 that, or I'm sorry, I can't even see the number here, I think it's verse 4, that the Passover was at hand. You know, several times in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus going to the Passover. Now, we know that the Jews went every year of, of their lives, and that Jesus went every year of his life until, that, until they finally crucified him on Passover, right? So here's just another place in, in Scripture where Jesus and the disciples are following the law of God and attending the Passover, which was the announcement of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So John adds that in there as a notation of the time span here. So in Jesus' ministry, we can assume it to be about three years, he went to three Passovers. Um, And then the story about the loaves and the fishes, which we've read from from several uh, sources, several versions over the years, or the the few versions of of the evangelist over the years and even in the past few weeks. And so I'd like to focus on some other aspects of this story that may not seem so important, and the evangelist sort of moves by them quickly. But we'll begin with verse 14 this morning, where John wrote, Those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, we touched on this incident last week, um, and I labored over it quite a bit from Mark's gospel. And we took um, the emphasis of it to the place where the compassion of Christ was fulfilled by the loving instruction of Christ, we may remember. Um, Mark wrote, he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Friends, teaching is the fundamental response of compassion. It is the fundamental Christian act of love. It is something that every Christian knows. It is certainly something that every parent knows. If you love your child, you will teach him. The Bible is full of those exhortations, particularly from the book of Proverbs, right? And so we should realize at the outset that different evangelists emphasize different aspects of the same event, all right? Mark didn't focus on the same things about the healing about the feeding of the 5,000, as, as John focused on. They focused on different aspects of the same event. There were many, there are many out there, scholars, who would seize upon this and say, see, they're telling different, different stories, different versions. Well, they are telling different versions. And God appointed different men to tell different versions of the same event and emphasize different aspects of the same event. And so disciples react differently to the same set of circumstances. Different disciples act differently. Some act well and in accordance with the will of God. Others act badly, wrongly believing that they act in accordance with the will of God. You know, there's the will of God, and there's what, and then there is what any particular Christian in any moment of time believes is the word of God. I would refer you to the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, where he certainly believed he was acting in the will of God till God, God met him on the road in the form of the risen Christ and said, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you persecuting me? Here is poor Saul thinking he was doing the right thing by persecuting the very people that Jesus had saved. And this is the trend. And this is the thing in the church that we, that we try to discern between what is the will of God 
and what is really our own version of the will of God. So last week we explored the several false assumptions regarding the identity of Christ. You remember that? We spoke of the superstitious conclusions about Jesus' identity that were reached by the masses and even by the king who at the time was Herod Antipas, right? He was the one who killed John the Baptist, as we saw last week, and he would be the one who would uh, essentially pronounce Jesus innocent, but let him go to the cross anyway, all right? So we read last week that some said Jesus was Elijah. That was a good guess, but just a guess, right? Others said he's one of the prophets. Well, he was. And the king said, well, he's John the Baptist risen from the dead, which was really quite foolish. I mean, he and John were together in the Jordan being baptized. If anyone had bothered to take a notice, you know that they were both there together. If it was the same guy, that couldn't have happened, right? So these are all guesses. It's so much guesswork in our faith today. And so what is John's emphasis in the version of this great miracle? Well, we always know that the sense of the miracle, we always get that. There's a few loaves. Jesus tests the disciples. He sort of plays with them. You might even say he goofs on them a little bit. You know what I mean? He asked, Pete, he asked Philip this question, and then John editorializes and said he really knew the answer. He just wanted to see if he'd get Philip going on it. And so he asked Philip, and, and I'll tell you this, both evangelists got the, the amount of money, right? The 200 denarii, I guess, was what they were carrying with them. Judas was the treasurer. Go figure that, right? You talk about corrupt leaders. Right? God, Jesus chose Judas to watch the money. But um, they apparently had on hand 200 denarii, and it was, it was foolish to even think they could buy enough bread for the group of people they had there, which was very numerous. Even the men were 5,000, Right? And so what's John's emphasis in this? Well, I always like to point to one thing first before we get into the heart of what I think the uh, message should be this morning. We read from verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. All right, so he gives thanks for these few provisions. It doesn't say that he prayed that God would multiply the provisions, does it? It doesn't say any such thing. He took the few provisions and was thankful that they had those. Now, as I recall, there were five loaves and two fishes. Am I right? I tend to mix that up sometimes. But five loaves, two fishes, 12 apostles. So he gives thanks and immediately has enough to distribute to 12 apostles. And they immediately have enough to deliver to thousands and thousands of other people. So the lesson here is simply this, friends, gratitude for provision is not incidental to multiplication of provision. Be thankful for what we do have. Friends, we can ask God for anything, whatever you ask in my name, he says. We can ask God for anything, but he's really pleased when we thank him for the things he's already blessed us with. So be thankful for the little Be thankful for the loaves that are present before presuming that more is needed. Jesus did not pray for increase. He offered thanks, and the increase came. And I hardly believe that this action was missed by the apostles. Thanksgiving, friends, should come before expectation. Thanksgiving is the quintessential act of worship to a divine provider. 
For the God that is blessed with subsistence is able to bless with abundance, isn't he? And we've seen it many times, even in our own lives, and certainly through the pages of Scripture. Now, the emphasis I spoke of that's different here in John's version is this. The disciples seem to have a a better line on the identity of Jesus than the ones that Mark observed last week. Well, he observed it 2,000 years ago, but we spoke about it last week. Um, The disciples rightly perceive that Jesus is the prophet. In fact, the Messiah foretold by Moses. We read from it last week, again, from Deuteronomy, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. From Deuteronomy 18.15. We don't see the same bantering about with regard to the prophet status of Jesus that we saw in Mark. This is, the only, this is the only statement about his identity that Mark decides to include here. And certainly all that other bantering was going on. But John, for purposes, uh, I would say of his own, but probably of the Holy Spirit, right, focuses on this fact. They knew that Jesus was the prophesied prophet to come. And so we may recall from Mark's version that the masses wrongly and superstitiously miss the identity of Christ. But for John, though it seems they perceive rightly regarding his identity, they perceive wrongly regarding his will. They rightly recognize his power. How could you miss it? They wrongly recognize his purpose. They know he has the power. They're still lost in confusion about his purpose. So some perceive power and are led by superstition, friends. Others perceive power and are led by personal ambition. And so we read this from verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. He absconds. He realizes. He did all these wonderful works. He taught them out of his own compassion. He fed them out of his own abundant heart and power of God. And yet they would take him by force for their own petty nationalistic interests. He's having no part of it. He's not your candidate. It disparages the Lord to think of him as a candidate running for office. Now surely there were some among them who were studied enough in prophecy to determine the identity of their Messiah when he revealed himself. We shouldn't be surprised at that. We see it in the nativity stories. The wise men knew he was from God and was the son of God, right? They informed Herod the Great. That would be the father of this Herod. Not the same person. So the wise men from the east knew that from Matthew's tale. And the prophet and prophetess in Jerusalem knew he was the savior from Luke's tale. People figured it out, and he was still a baby. He hadn't hadn't done any mighty work yet except be born to a virgin. So in this version, the same people who identify the person of Christ remain unaware of the purpose of Christ. And Jesus needs both. He needs us to know who he is, and he needs us to know what his purpose is for himself and for us. And maybe even for the world, friends. We ought to be more studied in Christ than assume we can take him and lead him in for our little political agendas. They knew some aspects of the Messiah, that he was powerful. They saw that. 
that he was compassionate. They certainly saw that. That he would sit on the throne of Israel as king of kings. They saw that. They thought they would bring it about. Of course, he would, as you know the gospel story, he was nowhere near ready to be proclaimed that. He had other things to accomplish. But like most zealous people in the world, their eyes were closed to the real battle. Their designs for their Messiah were secular and political, and friends, we may say personal, even petty. He had so much more to accomplish than becoming the king of Israel at that moment. And I'm going to elaborate on that somewhat. So note the confusion of purpose. He's Messiah. He has power to heal. He has power to feed the masses and is willing to do those things. His word gives birth to new reality. Yet we'll take him by force, they think. We'll make him king. We'll inform him of his duty to accomplish the real agenda that is set before him that maybe he doesn't see yet as clearly as we do. And the agenda, we may presume, is a nationalistic zeal for Israeli hegemony in Palestine. That's what they were looking for. Surely Messiah is come to free us from the yoke of bondage to Rome, they presume. Friends, he came to free them. He came to free the Romans. He came to free the whole world of a yoke of bondage, but not to the empire, to the sin that enslaves us, he came. Now their presumption is twofold. They're fundamentally mistaken regarding the nature of Christ's kingdom, and they're fundamentally mistaken regarding the nature of of Christ. We don't make him what he is, friends. He makes us what we are. Hence the passage that I read from John this morning. Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up in the last day. He draws us. We don't draw him. So they miss the real battle. They see the power. They see the compassion. They see the love. And yet they descend to the idea of little local interests. We tend to do that because our worlds affect us so much. It's hard for us to think, doesn't God see what we're dealing with here? I want to unravel some of that for us this morning because it's perplexing. It's as perplexing to me as it is to anyone. These sermons are hard to write. It's hard to go in here and pull out this great miracle and take this little point of interest that they try to make him king and he ran off to the hills to pray, left the apostles alone, right? He was having none of this. Now, for my whole evangelical life, I've recoiled at some of the pithy phrases that pass for doctrine and are assumed to be true, and they work their way into the lexicon of the churches. We all sort of speak and pray the same way, and which is fine to an extent as long as we're preaching his word and praying according to his will, so far as we know his will. I mean, we don't know his will in everything, so we pray thy will be done. That's when we don't know his will. When we do know his will, we pray for that thing to come about. Have you ever heard or have you ever said, I made Jesus my Savior? Have you ever said, I made Jesus my Lord? I think, if we're honest, we probably said that. It's technically untrue, but we say it anyway. And even if maybe we've learned not to, there's a lot of people who said, oh, I made him my Savior. I remember the day. Invited him into my heart and made him my Savior. I didn't make him my Lord, but I made him my Savior. Ever hear that? I didn't make him my Lord, but I made him my Savior. 
You know, there was actually, not all that long ago, when I was a young Christian, there was a huge debate about what was called lordship salvation. Can he be the savior and not the Lord? Can we sort of dissect him? I made him my savior. I've yet to make him my Lord. In other words, I've responded to his invitation, but I have as of yet refused his commandments. <laughs> you know, I like the fire insurance that he offers, but I'm not following, I'm not following those commandments. They're a little archaic. I mean, let's be honest, thou shalt not. This is a thou shalt society. So I take him for savior, but the Lord part, I, I haven't come there yet. I mean, we actually do these things, and I'm exaggerating it, I think, I hope. But it seems to me that's the gist of some of the understanding of believers today. Now what these zealots, and I mean these zealots, I mean the zealots from the passage that we're going to make him king. What they're saying is, I have made him my king. But let's get right to the point, friends. If God is sovereign, if God is all-powerful, if God's purpose and character are immutable, that's a good word, it means unchanging, right? It means unable to be changed right? He's immutable. Then he is what he is, and I and we are powerless to make him be or do anything that he himself is not already determined to do or be, right? How they missed that. We do not make him Lord, friends. He is the Lord. We do not make him Savior. He is the Savior. We do not make him King, friends. He is the King. There's a quaint sign that I poke fun of on my way to church. <laughs> it's on another local church. And it says their name, and then it says under it, where Jesus is Lord. And when I see it, when I see it, I think, what a small view of Jesus. Jesus is Lord over in that little that little church. That little tiny wooden building. He's Lord over there. Well, good for them. What a small view of lordship. It's really comforting to know that in that little building, on that little plot of land, in that little insignificant town, that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's go home. <laughs> Friends, of course he's Lord in that place. He's Lord of the big churches as well. He's Lord of the mountains. He's Lord of the sea. He's Lord of heaven. And it isn't because you invited him into the sea or invited him into heaven. He was Lord already. And if you can stand it, he's the Lord of hell as well. You, think, you thought Satan was, didn't you? God, Jesus is the Lord of hell. If I make my bed in Sheol, alas, he's there. You know the psalm. What a small view of Jesus. He's the Lord of heaven, the Lord of hell. And for the zealots on the shore that day, he's even Lord of the Roman Empire. And so for purposes, for our purposes rather, we may presume that he's the Lord in Congress. He's the Lord in the Supreme Court. He's the Lord in the White House. He's the Lord in Afghanistan. He's the Lord of the southern border and of the northern triangle of Central America. He's Lord of all these places. And he'll do what he wants with these things. And I'm not trying to dismantle all our political aspirations at all. I'm just trying to point out the overall umbrella of sovereignty. We're not taking God by surprise. It perplexes me as much as it does you as much as it did them, that his purposes seem so circuitous. Like, you're going to take over the world. How about you do it now? I'm saved. Let's go. It seems so circuitous. Like, go straight to it. When the end, friends, the, the reign of Christ in the earth is predicted and it's assured to happen. 
It perplexes me that he's content to put into earthly halls of government such seemingly insentient and incompetent overlords as we see in our government today. Let's look at the context of this passage. Imagine how the chosen people of the first century looked at the sovereign God's choice to serve as their governors and tetrarchs and emperors. Why did he choose those guys, right? The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Let's take Herod. You know I like to psychoanalyze Herod. It's just because it's so easy. Herod Antipas was spiritually puny and emotionally weak, a hen-pecked old potentate fraught with a myriad of little superstitious fears and imaginations. Pilate was a sad little political opportunist and lapdog sycophant of Augustus. Nero was an incestuous nymphomaniac, matricidal lunatic, and serial arsonist. That's his resume. And all of them finally came to complete mental collapse and political ruin and or exile or suicide. For the masses to want to serp and accelerate the Lord's plan to rule in their place is almost forgivable. It was bad then, right? I think most of us see it, it's kind of bad now. Or on its way to be, at least, right? It was bad then. So their plan to grab Jesus and make him, put a, thr- a crown on him and make him rule and remind him of how powerful he is. Remember the disciples? Call down fire from heaven upon them, Lord, as Elijah did. And the captains of fifties and the captains of hundreds, remember? And he said, boy, do you misunderstand my purpose? I didn't come here for that. Not yet. Coming again, we'll do some of that, but... This time around, we're not doing it. For the masses to want to usurp and accelerate the Lord's plan to rule in their place is almost as forgivable as it is understandable. I get it. But it's still abhorrent and abominable because we miss the whole point. We don't set agendas for the king. He is the agenda setter. He doesn't have handlers, publicists, right? Spokesmen. Well, he does have spokesmen. He wants us to be the spokesman. So in hindsight, what do we conclude about the Lord's choices for holders of high office in, the first, in first century Palestine? Well, let's see what he needed. What did Jesus need as far as the, um, as far as the uh, requirements um, of his office holders in the first century? He needed men so corrupt, so morally weak, so politically motivated that they would allow a man to be crucified even though they knew he was innocent. He needed those guys because he had to get to that cross. God needed a government of flawed men to accomplish his greatest earthly purpose, and so he did. And that purpose was not seen or understood by the disciples until long after they transpired. And I must tell you, I don't know the Lord's purpose in seeing such incompetence in world leaders today. But I'm quite certain he's handling it. He has a good resume for doing that. And so the masses saw him heal where there was sickness. They saw him create abundance where there was scarcity, fullness where there was emptiness. He surpassed all the promises and policies of the leaders of the day. He would give them what their leaders could not give them. So why not translate that power into governmental power? And so they sought to make him king. What they overlooked, though, what they did not understand at all, is that all that the Lord does 
he does of his own free will. You know, we talk about free will a lot. We have free will, but it's, it's not unlimited, is it? It's not absolute, right? Your will is conditioned by your nature. I always like to say, you can will to jump off the roof and fly, but gravity has a different will than you have, right? Jesus has that will. I mean, we're talking about a guy who can walk on water. He has complete will, free will. So when we speak of free will here, it's different than when we talk about our own free will. Whatever he wills, he will do for his own eternal purposes, whether they're seen or unseen by us, whether we ever get it or not, whether we ever know why certain people are in public office or places of influence, we, we may never understand it. But it all works into the tapestry of God's orchestration of history, bringing it to a final and triumphant place. I don't know why he does it that way. But I can see as I look back why he did it that way. And it gives me confidence that he's still doing it that way. All they saw was that he could do what their leaders could not do. But we may ask, how is it that foolish men seek to make the Lord do anything? You know, the, the masses that day wanted to make him king. Or this group of zealots wanted to make him king. The apostles are like, boy, do they not know him. So they got in the boat and they went away and Jesus took off on his own. This is a strange turn of events. Jesus goes to the mountain, the men go to the sea, the, the apostles go to the sea, and the masses are like, now what do we do? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Our personal, secular, political, partisan agendas, which seem so big to us in the moment, are so small in relation to the ultimate purposes of Christ. When President Lincoln was asked with regard to the Civil War, do you think that God is on our side, he answered, I don't know. I just hope that we're on God's side. And that's what we must glean from this particular gospel tale. I just hope that we're on God's side. And so what happened? What happened there is what happens today. It's what happens in our lives when we presume that our purpose is God's purpose. He departed from them. And so he departs from us from time to time. And while he's away, it's always to show us how dire life can be and how quickly it becomes dreary and dark and fearful in his absence. And so we read this, verses 16 through 19. So when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark. It was already dark. And Jesus had not come to them. It was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. That's a little bit of despair. And the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. That's all we need. <laughs> In other words, Jesus left them to themselves, and so they left for home. Capernaum was home, right? The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was witnessed and herald, heralded by the masses far and wide. The power and presence of Christ was seen and heard and known. There was no mistake but as soon as it was received, it was misconceived. And the mind started going, we could do this with his power. If we could only get him to do this, think what could happen. As though he doesn't have a plan. <laughs> I'll never forget, years ago, Mitt Romney was running for president, and they said he didn't have a plan, so he came up with an economic plan. It was a 52-point plan. I always wanted to be, a, I always wanted to be in the, on the press crew there and say, uh, what's number 37 again? <laughs> you know, I mean, as though Jesus doesn't have a plan worked out, you know? 
So we have to run in and get our handlers to help us pretend we have a plan. Yeah, we make a lot of points. The power and presence of Christ was seen and heard and known, but as soon as it was received, it was misconceived. And so they thought if he can do this for us, imagine what mighty things we can give him to do. It seems that after a great deliverance, we should expect a great storm. You know, it seems like this should have been a time of rejoicing. He just did this great thing. He preached to them out of the mercy of his heart because they were sheep not having a shepherd. He was their shepherd. He taught them what they needed to know about him, about life, about morality. And then he didn't let them go home hungry. Even though there was nothing to eat, he fed them. It was extraordinary. I don't know. I think there should have been music and dancing after that. Instead, he absconds to the hills to be alone. Matthew Henry wrote about it. He said, They had lately been feasted at Christ's table, but after the sunshine of comfort, expect a storm. And then he he wrote this, The absence of Christ is the great aggravation of the troubles of Christians. Because of all the turmoil, the twelve apostles end up all alone in the boat without the Savior. You don't want to be in the boat without the Savior. Now let's be clear, friends, the apostles were not among the men who would have apprehended the Lord. I'm not tying those two together, all right? They were not trying to commandeer his agenda. But neither did they defend against such a preposterous and presumptuous plan. Remember, both Pilate and Herod pronounced him innocent, but he was killed anyway. He had a plan. It didn't depend on what the leaders did and said. His purpose was to go to the cross alone and to die alone. And so here, for his hour had not yet come, the Messiah absconds to the hills. Jesus went off to pray alone. At the very least, it's an example to follow. Maybe they should have done that. (laughs) Retiring alone to pray is perhaps more effectual and more empowering and more comforting than it appears to the activist. Generally speaking, the activist is not a prayer. He's more of a doer, a seat-of-the-pants type doer. The Christian activist should not be that. The serious Christian must consider the adage that says, never less alone than when alone. There's something very sweet, the sweet hour of prayer. There's times when we should pray so sincerely in crying out to God that we don't, and we have such witness of his presence and of his audience of that prayer that we don't even want to come back. Yet even Jesus, in the presence of the Father, alone on the mountain, who knows what happened? Did angels attend him like in the wilderness, the 40 days? Did angels come and minister to him? We don't know. Was he seen in his glory like the Mount of Transfiguration? We don't know. I suspect maybe all of those things. When Jesus was alone with the Father, who knows? Maybe someday we'll know. He was not alone. He was with the Father. Never less alone than when alone. Remember, he went in to heal the daughter of Jairus. We read that recently. He expelled the unbelievers. They were ridiculing him. She's dead. He expelled them. So when he found no competent allies, he thought it best to be alone with God. It's good for him to retire from public life for a time. Let the apostles yearn for his nearness, for his presence, and for his word. And it didn't take long before they did. Remember when the Lord went into, or rather, um, I know what you or I would be thinking at that moment. I would be thinking, why did he feed us only to drown us? That's how my mind works. I have to watch that. 
I'm drowning to the glory of God. Hallelujah. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. We've come so far with him. Why would he leave us without a word and without direction? And where did he go? And then I would think, I would have rather stayed in the soft grass without food than on an angry sea without the captain. And so we read, it was dark and Jesus had not yet come. I think I can feel that darkness. I think I felt it. It reads like a psalm, doesn't it? It was dark and Jesus had not yet come. Psalm 44, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? There's a prayer for Friday prayer meeting. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? And so the prophet writes of such times. And so we read, for a mere moment, Isaiah writes, for a mere moment I have forsaken you. But with great mercies, I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Friends, he fed the masses that day. And that evening, the disciples were perishing on the sea without the Lord in the dark. There's something about the dark that makes it so much more egregious, doesn't it? Verse 19, so when they had rowed about three or four miles. Now, you've got to think about that. I always underline like little directions like that, little time references, three or four miles. That means Jesus walked three or four miles on the sea, you know? Um, you think he's doing like four-minute miles? I mean, how, you know, how's he doing? I'm, I'm predicting he didn't walk. He sort of just was the Lord. This is the Lord that, you know, comes through walls, right? I mean, this Lord does. I, I, don't, I just don't picture him like sort of jaunting along, you know, on the waves. He's just sort of, no wonder they thought it was an apparition. I don't blame them. They're just men. They hadn't seen this before. They rowed about three or four miles. <laughs> That's tough rowing. Three or four miles they rowed. In other words, they didn't put the sail up because it was stormy. You don't want the sail up when it's stormy. And they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. I think I have to do this whole sermon over next week from, from, the, uh, from the Gospel of, of Matthew where right after Jesus walks on the waves, Peter walks on the waves. But notice, John didn't talk about that. They were too busy saying, who'd be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'm not going to write about Peter. (laughs) I don't know. And so Matthew Henry wrote this, when they thought a demon haunted them, remember, it is a ghost, Mark wrote, it is a ghost. When they thought a demon haunted them and perhaps was instrumental to raise the storm, they were more terrified than they had been when they saw nothing in it but what was natural. In other words, give me a natural storm, but don't give me a demonic storm. And now you're sending the demon out to us in the middle of the night on the sea because there's no one else that could be out there. And then he concluded, Matthew Henry, with one of his famous notes, he wrote, Our real distresses are often much increased by our imaginary ones. Friends, this is what the sermon is about. We have real distresses, and we have imaginary ones, and we have been equipped to discern one from the other. So much of the Christian life is a trial of discernment, friends, isn't it? Between real distresses and imaginary distresses. To harbor wrong opinions about the purposes of Christ, friends, is as idolatrous as harboring wrong opinions about the identity of Christ. What things would he really have us strive for? What things would he really have us fear? And so even his unannounced approach became a thing to fear. In other words, he finally comes and they fear his coming. Inordinate fears cause confusion of purpose. I can almost imagine, row faster, it's getting closer. 
And so today the apostles are not in the storm, friends. They're in heaven. They've weathered the storm. They are the church triumphant. We're in the storm. We're the church militant. We're still fighting the battle, right? We're in the boat, friends. We're in the storm. We prayed about all the various storms circulating around us this morning, not to mention the actual hurricane that's upon us. Supposed to hit what? Two o'clock hits the mainland. Going to hit Westerly, Rhode Island or Newport or something. I'm glad we went to Newport the other day. Karen and I went the other day before. It's gone. Now, I'm being the media. The media has us all, has us all worked up. We're in the boat, friends, and if our agendas misconceive and limit the purposes of Christ, he'll refuse to sit alongside us to comfort us. But we may be assured that when we're in imminent trouble, when we rediscover that it's his absence that animates our and feeds our every fear and imagination, he'll come to us in that time. He let them go, but he came to them when the storm hit. The real fear hit. He was there. He'll announce himself. There'll be no mistaken identity. We're in trouble, but the Savior has arrived. Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Friends, the church is at sea in a stormy gale. The church is tossed, but not lost. Shaken, but not forsaken. And our access to Christ is hidden, but not forbidden. And when the vessel is finally docked and safe, the world will wonder as the masses wondered in that day, how is Christ still among them when we saw that they left without him? Right? And they marveled. And the rest of the story is the next day they get there and the masses are there and they said, how did Jesus get here? We saw you go in the boat. We saw him go up to the mountain. How did he get here before us? And they're all in a quandary again. So when the vessel's finally docked and safe, the world will wonder as the masses wondered in that day. How is Christ still among them when we saw them leave without him? How was the church united with the Lord when we knew that they were on the sea and he was on the mountain? It's in that moment that we find, as they did, that we have suddenly arrived at our destination. And so we read, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Friends, I did the geography. They were four miles out, tops, right? It's many more miles to the other side, but they were there. That's a big sea. That's like a great lake. It's in that moment that we find, as they did, that we suddenly arrived at our destination. They were at the place where they were going. Friends, you've got bad leaders, but do not fear. It is I. We've been badly used, but do not fear. It is I. Your principles and your conscientious objections are challenged, but do not fear. It is I. Even when his beloved are fearful and on the wrong path, he'll find them. He's coming to find us. Even when they were foolish and did not discern his purpose for them, he arrives and announces himself. Even though he goes off to pray and to be alone with the Father, and you do not, he can be depended upon to arrive. And you may find that through all the fear and through all the superstition and through all the lack of discernment that the boat will suddenly arrive at the place where it needed to be after all. Sometimes the lessons of the gospel are just too simple, almost simplistic. Sometimes I think they're too familiar and sometimes too personal. The masses in our passage were irrational. It's irrational to believe we can conscript the Lord into our service. Enlist him. Sign him up. 
The apostles were fearful of we have seen. I see a church today that's all too fearful and irrational and all too willing to be led by spurious tales and popular hysteria. And these are indeed interesting and challenging, even unprecedented times. But friends, the Christian knows there's no unprecedented times. There's nothing new under the sun that has not been in other times before. And we weathered the storm, and the Lord got in the boat, and he announced himself, and he brought us to the place that we were going, and we'll be there. We're not, we are never in ultimate danger. We are the church. We're not in any danger that the Lord himself has not placed us in. And we may expect that in all times and any danger that we figure prominently into his plan. We're not a side issue, you know. We're not a side issue. We're the issue. We figure prominently into the whole scheme of God's plan for reality. And in the end, when global warming hits, he said, I'll melt the earth with fervent heat, right? Everything will melt away. I think they're right. Maybe it's not immediate. Maybe it heats up slowly, like the frog in the pot. But when global warming finally hits, we're the only thing saved. Everything else is melted and remade and recycled. (laughs) We're the church, friends. We're not in any ultimate danger. I don't like the trials either. I don't like trials. Heaven forgive me, I don't count it joy when I fall into various trials. I try to, but it's not my first instinct. I'm just like these guys. I'm not like, boy, those stupid apostles, why didn't they just know that Jesus would come? We all know that we're just like that. We may expect that in all times in any danger we figure prominently into his plan, and so the prophet Isaiah tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he'll have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know, there's no talk there about how angry he was at them. He wasn't. He didn't tell them how fearful they were. In this, in this version, he didn't even say, you have little faith. <laughs> what am I going to do with you? He didn't do one of those. He just came and he saved them. He came, he floated across the sea, and the, suddenly they looked at him and then they looked and they were at land, it seems to me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth land, uh, may, may it bring forth and bud, that I may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Amen. Father, give us complete confidence in your orchestration of all things that are and will transpire. And let us know our place in them, Lord. For we are indeed in a trial of discernment in these days. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.